following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to uh, Book of Ephesians. We're looking at chapter 1. We're looking through verses 3 through 14. If you haven't got a Bible, I'm hoping the words will be up on the screen. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Gee, that's a long sentence. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. To the praise of His glory. When I uh, think about this passage, I can't help but think about my uh, grandfather. He's 94 years old, uh, fit as a fiddle, sharp as a razor. He still drives to the, uh, I don't know, to the horror of everyone else on the road. And uh, he's a real prim and proper English gentleman who also falls asleep in front of the TV quite regularly. And I remember growing up, he'd fall asleep halfway through one TV show, and he'd wake up halfway through another, an hour later. And in his mind, he'd only dozed off for a second. But it was an hour later that he'd woken up. So as he woke up, this look of horror and confusion would come across his face. He'd be staring at the TV, unable to make sense of what was going on. And uh, there'd be a whole new cast of characters on the screen, uh, there's a new setting for the story, so where they might have been in the city before, now they're in the desert and it's a spaghetti western as opposed to a, a comedy drama. And, uh, and there's of course a whole new story going on. So you could tell he was confused when he started saying things, hey, who's this guy? What's he doing on the screen? Hey, where are they now? Why are they in the desert? What's going on? And he'd be horribly, horribly confused. And that's what this passage can do to you. It can make you feel as confused as my grandfather. It can seem like this big, messy pile of theological ideas that have just been tossed out there. And we're supposed to sift through it and find out some nuggets of truth. And a lot of commentators think that Paul was just kind of caught up in the moment, tumbling out ideas as they entered his mind. I don't think that's the case at all. Mostly because this is a letter that Paul's written. And if you had to write a letter in Paul's day, it was actually quite an expensive undertaking. They didn't have reams of paper and pens to churn these things out. You had to be prepared. You had to know what you wanted to say and say it because you meant it. Also, when I look at the language of some of these, of this passage, you know, words like creation, adoption to sonship, redemption through Jesus' blood, forgiveness of sins, wisdom, God's will, heaven and earth united under Christ, good news, promised Holy Spirit, 
inheritance. Those words just seem too carefully structured to me to be accidental. What I think is going on here is I think Paul is deliberately echoing the biblical story. He's actually picking up on key moments in the grand narrative of Scripture. But very cleverly what Paul's doing is right at the center of the biblical story that he's retelling is Jesus. It starts in verse 4 with creation. For he chose us in him, in Jesus, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, I know there's lots of views out there on, on God's choice and free will and how that all works out, and I'm really not going to get into any of that today, but one thing that's really clear from the start of this is that Jesus isn't some last-minute addition to God's plan of salvation. He's not a plan B when plan A didn't work out. Jesus was there before the creation of the world, before God put the earth into motion. God's plan of redemption looked like Jesus. Paul is telling us to look right back to creation, look back right to the start, and you'll see that it was all about Jesus. He's retelling the biblical story with Jesus at center. Have a look at that phrase, redemption through his blood. Now that word redemption is actually quite common in the ancient world. It was the price you paid to free a slave. They called it the redemption price. It's the price a slave would pay for his freedom. For Paul, that actually takes him right back to the Exodus, to the Passover, when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And the price of their redemption was the blood of a lamb. They had to paint the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their houses, and in that way, God's judgment destined for Egypt passed over them. It passed over their house, and and God didn't take the life of the firstborn in that house. And that act of obedience meant Israel were protected from God's judgment on Egypt. And so God led his people out of Egypt on the Exodus to their physical freedom in the promised land. But although they were physically free from slavery, it was still a deeper spiritual slavery that kept Israel in slavery. They were in slavery to sin, to death, to evil. And Paul makes the connection here that when people come to Jesus, it's like they're led on a new Exodus. They're led out of their slavery to sin. They're redeemed from their slavery to sin. Jesus' blood on the cross is the redemption price paid for our freedom. God's judgment has passed over us and onto Christ, our Passover sacrifice. Paul is again telling us, look back to the Exodus and you'll see all along it pointed to Jesus. He's retelling the biblical story with Jesus at the center. And then there's that phrase in verse 10. He says, uh, God's plan was to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. We know that God's plan didn't end with the cross. He'd always planned to bring heaven and earth together. That's what Revelation 21 and 22 talks about, heaven coming down to earth, the two realms forever being joined. And if you were a good first century Jew, you would know that the place where heaven and earth came together was the temple. You see, that was the place where God's realm of heaven and the realm of earth overlapped because that was the place where God lived with his people. That's why Daniel prayed by his window in the direction of Jerusalem. It was a symbolic action. He was praying in the direction of the temple. He was praying in the direction of God's presence. Rabbis would later say that if you wanted to be assured that your prayers were heard, you had to pray in the direction of the temple because that's where God was. That's his presence. And Paul would say Jesus is the new temple. 
because in Him the fullness of deity lives bodily. Jesus is God incarnate, God in the flesh. He is the presence of God. In Jesus, it's the return of Yahweh to Zion. It's the return of God's presence with His people. That's what Jesus is. And the temple was also the place where you received the forgiveness for sins. And then Paul would say, well, again, Jesus is the new temple because it's in the shedding of His blood that we have the forgiveness of sins, not the sacrifice of bulls and goats in the temple. Look back to the temple, you'll see, says Paul. And you'll see all along, it pointed to Jesus. The temple was the shadow of which Christ was the substance. Paul's retelling the biblical story with Jesus at the center of everything. Paul would say, no matter where you look in the Bible, actually, you'll find Jesus there. Jesus is the Lord. Well, that's an Old Testament title for God. God adopted us as sons and daughters into his family in Jesus. That goes back to the promise made to Abraham for a worldwide family through whom all the world would be blessed. That promise has been fulfilled in Jesus. God has shown us grace in Jesus. He has redeemed us from our slavery, forgiven our sins through the blood of Jesus on the cross. He has revealed his will to us for the world in Jesus. Paul is retelling that biblical story starting in creation, going all the way through to new creation, and at the center of every key moment is Jesus. Why on earth is he doing that? Why is he retelling the story this way? More than just telling a story, I think Paul's giving us an invitation. I think he wants us to find our very life, our being, our characters. Everything about us needs to be found in the story, in the person of Jesus. Because when we come to faith in Jesus, his story becomes our story. We become part of the story of God's redemption that he's playing out in the world every day. And Paul does this because he knows that when his churches step out into the wider world, they're going to be hit with a plethora of other stories. Stories are going to try and tell them that your character's not in that story, it's in this one. You don't find your life in that story about Jesus, you find it in this one. You find your life and being and meaning in another story, not this one about Jesus. That's what the world is going to do to you. Isn't that just the same for us, though? We have the story of consumerism that tries to force us into the mold of being a consumer. It says the ultimate goal of your life is to find meaning, fulfillment, and happiness in the things you buy, accumulate, and hold on to as possessions. I'm always amazed at how many of these uh, daily deal websites have sprung up over the last few years. I get emails from Grab One just about every day, sometimes twice a day if they've got a lot of things to sell. And I'm always amazed that I, I never need anything that's in them. I mean, I don't think I've ever needed anything they've got to sell, you know, from a, a flying remote control blow-up shark to a you know, know half-price sports massage or something like that. But um, you know, as soon as I open that email, man, I feel myself just getting sucked in. I just have a quick glance, and I'm already starting to think, oh, you know, it's been a long week. Eh? I kind of deserve a little something. And then, of course, there's this half-price deal for a restaurant that's normally way outside my budget. I could never afford it. Seven-course degustation menu for only $99 for two. <gasps> of course, I better do it. Might as well. Dr. Phil says the three most expensive words you'll ever say in your life are might as well. <laughs> Barbecue is only going to cost $400. Well, the next one up is only $600. Oh, I might as well spend the extra money. Yeah, three most expensive words you'll ever say in your life. You know, I've also noticed that when they advertise things like a half-price sports massage, it's like my neck and shoulders, they just start to ache a little bit, and I'm like, 
I just have to buy this because, I mean, the pain's not going to go away until I spend that money. It's like you don't even have to go to the mall to feel the pull of consumerism. You can sit at your desk at work. So I've since unsubscribed from those emails because I found myself spending way too much money on them. What would Paul say to this? Do you know who you are in Christ? You are co-heirs with Christ. You will share in Christ's inheritance. You will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. You will have everything. Right now, you lack nothing because you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Not just some blessings, but all blessings. Jesus alone will satisfy the cravings of your soul that we try to fill with stuff. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, why are we settling for mud pies on the sand when we've been given a seat at a five-star buffet? Then there's the story of secular humanism, which tells us that we are cosmic accidents, products of time, matter, chance. There really is no meaning in life. There's no hereafter. All you have is the here and now, and any meaning you can hold on to, grab onto that, because that's all you got. There's nothing else. You can see how that works quite well with the story of individualism, which says, I am the center of the universe. It's all about me. Everything I do has to make me happy. My destiny is in my own hands. I am the captain of my own soul. Because if that's the case, and there is no meaning in life, well, then what does it matter whether you live as a sinner or a saint? What does it matter if you're Hitler or Mother Teresa? What does Paul say to that? No, you were chosen by God from before the creation of the world. Your life is not your own. You were purchased by the blood of Jesus. You are no longer a slave to sin, but to righteousness, to holiness, to purity. The world is going somewhere. One day God will put this world to rights. He will fix everything. He will join heaven and earth together around the person of Jesus. God will put this world to rights. I think what, what makes the stories of, of consumerism and, and secular humanism just so attractive and just so effective is that they work on the level of imagination. They, they don't slap us in the face and say, you better believe me, I'm true. They kind of creep past our defenses and slowly, little by little, they become the dominant way we see the world. We start to see, feel, hear, taste, touch the world through these stories. And that's why Paul just keeps bringing us back to Jesus. He wants our imagination to be captured by him. He wants our imagination to be fired by the gospel story, not by the stories of the culture. He wants us to see all of life through the lens of Jesus, through the lens of the gospel story. Because it's actually only through Jesus that we can truly make sense of the world. It's because of Jesus we can imagine a world where we're not actually the center of the universe. Jesus tells us that God's plan of redemption actually revolves around him and God. We're, we're part of it as well, but it all is about Jesus. It's all about God. It's because of Jesus we can imagine a world where there is no more death, bankruptcies, job losses, crying babies, broken marriages, poverty, pain, suffering, hurt, rejection. Just as Jesus stepped out of the tomb to new life, so God will one day make all things new. In Jesus, we see the faithfulness of God to his good creation gone bad. God was faithful to Jesus. He didn't abandon him to the grave. He vindicated him as the Messiah, the King, the Son of God. 
God has not given up on this world and he will not give up on us. And it's because of Jesus we can also then make sense of the beauty and the goodness of the world. As corrupt as this world is by sin, it remains God's good world. It's his good creation. It's a world that is still filled with the beauty and the glory of its creator. It's a world made for us to enjoy. So then, what are some of the ways we can actually keep Jesus front and center? What are some of the ways we can cultivate a gospel-centered imagination? I can't think of an area that's, that's more helpful for the imagination, and, and I think also more neglected by us as Christians than works of art and all things creative. Good art is just so important. I say that as a musician, so... It gets our attention, it stops us in our tracks, it challenges us, it moves us, opens our minds to fresh possibilities, it works its way down into our imagination, helping us to see life in new light. I'll give you an example, in the British Museum there's a sculpture, and it's of the tree of life from the book of Revelation. Now that in itself is nothing ordinary, but it's made entirely out of decommissioned weapons from the Mozambican Civil War. Doesn't that make a statement? On one hand, you come face to face with a cold, hard reality of evil in the world and the brutality of human beings, of how we can just be horrendous to each other, destroy and kill each other. On the other side, you come face to face with the gospel. Think about the stories that this piece of art challenges simply by its existence. Challenges the story that says human beings are basically good. With enough money, education, freedom, democracy, whatever you want, we can create a perfect society. No, says this piece of art. There's real evil in the world. People who survived that Mozambican civil war will surely attest to the reality of evil. Often more money and education just means more guns, more bombs, more sophisticated ways of killing each other. But then it also tells the gospel story. The tree of life is in the new heavens and the new earth. It points to a time when there's no more death, no more war, no more tears. It points to a time when Jesus, who stands at the close of history, says, Behold, I make all things new. It points to a time where God will flood the world with his mercy, justice, glory, healing. Redemption, reconciliation. This piece of art was actually um, sponsored by an organization called Christian Aid, and they're active in the ground in, on Mozambique. And uh, what they're doing is actually really cool. They're encouraging people to trade in their weapons for plows, for bicycles, for sewing machines. Doesn't that sound a lot like what Isaiah had to say in Isaiah 2? Will, nation will no longer rise up against nation. They will beat their... Spears, what am I going to I better read this again. Nation will no longer rise up against nation, and they will beat these swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Actively embodying the gospel on the ground in Mozambique. You see, I wonder how many people actually became aware of Christian aid simply through this piece of art, simply through its existence. I wonder how many people, when they saw it, were suddenly challenged with another story, who found their own stories challenged. People who'd given up hope suddenly challenged with the hope of the gospel. 
That's my son in the back. <sighs> Recognize his cry anywhere. <laughs> my wife and I have gone to the uh, Easter Art Show at the Rywini Centre a few times. It's uh, sponsored by Birkenhead Community Church. Uh, it's put on there in Birkenhead, and it showcases local artists who uh, have painted things or created sculptures or done all sorts of things on the theme of Easter. And the gallery is very cleverly designed. You, know? you have to walk through and past every piece of art until you get to the end. And right at the end is this uh, little quiet area for reflection. Sometimes they've got music playing in the background. Other times they've got, uh, what have they got? They've got gospel tracts and they've got some emblems for communion as well. And it's a nice little quiet Waldorf area. But the reason it's done at the end there and the reason you have to wander past every piece of art is because if the art has done its job, if it's been good enough art, by the time you've got there, to the end, to this area for reflection. You're already reflecting on the gospel. Your imagination has already become fired by what Jesus has done for you. That story is already front and center in your mind. So by the time you come to reflect, you know what you're reflecting on. Rob Bell tells the story of the first time he went to a U2 concert in his book, Velvet Elvis. Uh, he, he said uh, it was in the Joshua Tree tour and... Uh, when the band started playing that song, Where the Streets Have No Name, he said that was the first time he experienced the awe and majesty of God. His words, I was caught up for the first time in something in my life that was so massive and loving and transcendent and true. I specifically remember thinking the universe was safe in spite of all the horrible, tragic things in the world. I thought I was going to spontaneously combust with joy. This was real. This mattered. Whatever it was, I wanted more. All of that from a song and a concert from a band that wouldn't consider themselves a Christian band. I do know that the lead singer uh, Bono is a Christian. I've, I've read one of his biographies. And you can tell that in his, in his songs, he's just soaked himself in that biblical story so much that it can't help but come out when he's creative just comes out naturally. It's the dominant way he looks at the world. We've just had Christmas. It's just passed. And um, I remember one year my sister-in-law had a, a really great idea. She made an advent calendar. But instead of filling it with um, chocolates and lollies and all sorts of things like that, she wrapped up Christmas ornaments that she could hang on a tree. And with each little package, she put in a little piece of paper that told a bit about the Christmas story. So over the 24 days of opening these things, my little nephew would uh, learn the whole Christmas story. So he was really excited. He loved opening these things and getting to learn a bit about the story and hand them on the tree. And I guess you never really know how effective stuff is with kids, particularly when they're quite young. He was, I think, three or four years old. And uh, you, know, you might think it, it's, it's too complicated. They're just not going to get it. It's over their head. Or it's too simple and they're going to tune out. But you could tell that the gospel story was really working its way through his mind every day because about halfway through this, he said to his mum and dad, I want to see Jesus. Little guy, you could tell that the story had really been working its way through his mind. I know um, at this point some of you are probably thinking, look, I'm, that's all great, it's fine, I'm, I'm just not creative. And uh, you know, I just really hope you haven't switched off already. Uh, but... Let me just do a little bit of myth-busting. That's not true. Everyone's creative. 
We're all made in God's image, as Stephen said earlier. We serve the creator God, the God who works, the God who makes, the God who builds, who creates, the God who is creative. Part of what it means to image God is to be creative. There's no group of uh, creative people over here, the good-looking people, and then there's this group of non-creative people, so sorry for you guys, but uh, yeah. Everyone's creative. If you can think an original thought in your head, you're creative. If you can solve a problem, you're creative. If you can see how something bad could one day be made something good, even if you're not that person to make it happen, you're still creative. No escaping it. Even if you can't paint a picture, if you can't strum a chord on a guitar, if you can't sing a note in tune, you are still creative. So that means that the task of having a gospel-centered imagination, of developing and cultivating a gospel-centered imagination is a task for all of us, not just some of us. Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan preacher, believed that God had left clues in the world that pointed to important themes in Scripture. He, uh, he looked at a spider web and said, this is God's way of warning us of the crafty schemes of the devil. Pretty clever. Because Satan is always trying to lure and trap us in sin, just like a spider is trying to lure and trap a fly. Ooh. Then he looked at a butterfly and said, this is a God-given example of the death and resurrection of Jesus, how God brings life out of death. Well, there you have it. Spiders and butterflies are preaching the gospel. So you don't need to make something to be creative. To have a, a gospel-centered imagination means you just start seeing all of life through the person of Jesus, through the gospel story, through the biblical story. Jonathan Edwards was a really smart man. If you've tried to read any of his books, you'll know just how smart he is, because I can't make head or tail of what he's trying to say half the time. He wasn't given to flights of fantasy or delusion. He just took very seriously the idea that the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. Everything in creation is meant to point us back to God. Everything was made to reflect His glory. Now, if I'm honest, I'm, I'm actually a little embarrassed to talk about God and nature in the same sentence. It's because I think the secular world has just so ruled God out of the equation. If you mention God and nature in the same sentence, in some circles you're branded a fundamentalist nutter, and nobody wants to be that. It's like the story of secularism has said, well, no, 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 nature belongs to the realm of science and biology alone. Anything else is just, well, you can believe that if you want, but it's not true. I have to just keep coming back to the fact that look, this is God's world. It's because of Jesus I know this is God's world. No scientist has ever raised anyone from the dead, transformed them to a whole new life. Who else do I thank for the world? Can I thank a scientist and a biologist for the world? I can thank them for helping me understand it. And I certainly have no wish to go back to times when we didn't understand the world. But this is God's world. And I've, I've really felt God challenging me in this area of late. You know? Not challenged to argue with people of issues of creation and evolution. Not that those scientific questions aren't important and worth asking. But for me, it's, the challenge is just to simply to praise, to worship, and to thank God for the world around me. Challenge is to appreciate and to notice that this world is God's creation. Thank you, Lord, for the sunsets. It's spectacular. 
Thank you, Lord, for the stars I can see as I step out of my car at night. It's just amazing to think, Lord, how small I am in the vastness of this universe. But, Lord, you know me. You love me. You sent your son to die for me on this small little planet in the corner of some way out galaxy. You know me and you love me. You think about me all the time. Man, isn't that crazy? Lord, thanks for these mosquitoes that are biting me as I step out of my car. I'm sure they serve some purpose in your creation. Irritating as they are, Lord, I look forward to the time where there will be no more irritations, there will be no more distractions. Lord, thank you for giving me the eyesight and agility to kill these little buggers. (laughs) Oh, when they get so irritating. Lord, I look forward to the time when there will be no death and I will not have to kill mosquitoes because they will not be irritating. There you go, looking at the stars to looking at mosquitoes and having them bite you. They can even preach the gospel as well. A gospel-centered imagination, it doesn't happen overnight. You're not going to go home today and magically see everything with new eyes. I think it's a habit we actually just develop over time. And that means we, we just need to be regularly soaked in the biblical story. We've got to be people of the book. Eugene Peterson says, you know, we need to eat this book. Bible's got to be our food, regularly digested. Where's God calling you to exercise a gospel-centered imagination? Is He just calling you to notice where He's been active in the natural world around you? This country is so filled with beautiful, natural beauty. Do we notice it, that this is God's handiwork? Is God calling you to notice where He's been active in your home? Or in your workplace. So often we think we've got to bring God into these places, but God is already there. He's already working. Is God calling you to start seeing where He's active already? Where's your imagination being captured by the stories of the world? Have you given up hope? Have you started to get pessimistic and cynical because of all the news broadcasts? Maybe God is calling you to find your hope in Jesus again, to have your imagination fired by the story and hope of the gospel, not the stories of our culture. Where has the culture dictated to you who you are? You're just a consumer. Hey, man, it's all about you. Just do whatever makes you happy. It doesn't matter if someone says it's right or wrong. Maybe for you, it just means that you should spend some time in this passage. Start to understand, who am I in Christ? Maybe it just means taking your identity from the gospel instead of the stories from the culture. Where is God calling you to exercise a gospel-centered imagination today? Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that right back before the creation of the world, you have planned to save us and to save this good creation gone bad. Lord, you had always planned to give yourself for us. And we thank you that because of Jesus, we are welcomed back into your family. We now share in your story of redemption. We thank you for your amazing grace that we are covered by the blood of Jesus. We are freed from the power of sin and from slavery to death. Lord, we ask that you keep our hearts and our minds centered on Jesus. Let him be first in our hearts and first on our lips this week. Let your Holy Spirit continually testify of Jesus to us. 
Lord, we look forward to the time when you will make all things new and we pray with a sense of revelation. Come, Lord Jesus, come put this world to rights. And come put this world to rights by starting with us, Lord. Come put us to rights. Come make us new. We pray this in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.